jump into the series, uh, let, me, let me give you a couple uh, housekeeping items for Easter coming up, and then a save the date for some of the men of our church. Uh, we've been meeting with North Coast Calvary Church here in our community on one of the programs that they did all of 2017, and, and we've been talking about it, joining together. They have a number of churches that join together, and they've asked us if we would consider hosting it for 2018, and we said, absolutely, and it's called Grace Wins. And it's going to be once a month on a Monday night. We're going to have a night for men in our church, in our community, uh, in various churches around who are struggling with sex addiction and porn addiction and just that whole area of life that just sucks the life out of you, kills you on the inside. And we just want to have a night called Grace Wins where we get together. We're going to have someone share their testimony of how God set them free because we want you to know that you don't have to make good out of a bad situation. You can actually be set free. You don't have to just learn to manage it and control it and make sure it doesn't you know, affect every area of your life. You can absolutely be set free from this area of life and walk in freedom. So we're going to have testimony. We're going to have a, a teaching. And then just let people know what the resources are out there, the different small groups that are available to really hitting this head on and living the life that God has called us to live as men, men of integrity, men of purity. And we call it grace wins because the only way to beat this area of your life is grace. I know firsthand because I was an addict and struggling with porn addiction and sex addiction for many, many years of my life. And you can't beat it any other way but grace. Because the whole, the whole thing that Satan uses in your life to get you is shame, guilt, condemnation. And the dirtier you feel, the farther away you get from God and the less you get free. Like You don't willpower your way through this thing. You don't muscle your way through this thing. It is the grace of God that transforms you and sets you free. And so we're going to have once a month, we're just going to get together and we're going to talk about God's grace and give people real practical steps uh, in Christ where we can walk in freedom and be the men that God created us to be. So the first one is going to be April 9th. More information to come. Just uh, if you know somebody that should be there that night, bring them. Bring them. Even if you have to attend with them, bring them. Uh, you'll, you'll get something out of it too because you know, all of us have friends that struggle in this area and we all need to learn how to deal with it because it, it's, it's an epidemic in our society Today, uh, we're dealing with this with our teenagers right now in our youth ministry. Every Sunday night, I'm, I've been doing an eight-week series on sex and purity with our teens and, and really talking about how do we protect ourselves, guard ourselves, because this is something that, that is absolutely widespread. As we move into Easter, let me remind you, this Saturday is our annual spring cleanup. Every year before Easter, we get together on Saturday, and we get this place looking good for Easter. We want to we look our best for all of the visitors that are going to be with us over Easter weekend. So Saturday from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m., we're going to have lots and lots of donuts and coffee because you need lots of donuts and lots of coffee anytime you do a church work day. And we're going to have projects for everyone, men, women, children. It's a whole family event that day. Come, you get to know other people in the church. It's a way where we can get our hands dirty and really serve God's house, which brings me to Easter dream teams. We ask everybody who is a part of our church family one weekend a year, even if you're not part of a regular dream team, one week in a year, serve on the dream team. And, and here's why. Every Easter, we double in capacity. Every Easter, we have twice as many people attend our church than we typically have. So this Easter, we're going to have over 2,000 people here on campus. We had over 2,000 last year. We're going to have well over 2,000 again this year on campus. And we want to love those people. We want to serve those people. We want to make a difference in their life. To do that, we need the hands and feet of Jesus. And the Bible says we are the hands and feet of Jesus. And so in light of what Easter is, when you really think about Easter as a holiday, what is Easter? It's somebody who selflessly gave their life, sacrificed it all on our behalf. I think the greatest way to honor Jesus on that day is let's give a little bit of time. Let's get a little bit of time to be his hands, to be his feet, to love people he died for. Because there's going to be people here over Easter weekend who've never heard the gospel, who've never been to church before. And this is their chance to hear the message. And one of the ways God does it is through loving on people with his hands and feet. And that's us. And so we have a part to play. We have a job to do that weekend. And so we invite you to be a part of it with us. Let's make a difference in the lives of people. You can stop by the table outside or get online. There's information all over on that, and then also be thinking about who you're inviting this Easter. We have a whole a bunch of new resources for you. If you like the video we played a second ago, 
You can actually download that video off of our website or app, and you can post it on your Facebook. You can post it on your Instagram. We've got PDFs that you can download and save in your pictures folder, and you can text message friends. You know, we, have the, we have the business cards available, but a lot of people would rather just have the business card uh, as a PDF, and they can just kind of text it right out of their photos to their friends and invite them to be a part of one of the Easter experiences. And make sure you go online because all of the Sunday times are different. We had to add services on Sunday to accommodate the people that are going to be here. And so we've changed the time. So make sure you go online and you figure out what time you're going to attend on Easter Sunday. Or, to be very honest, Saturday night is probably the best one because you'll, you'll find parking and it's not going to be. Uh, Sunday, if you've ever been hungry on Easter, there's a lot of people here on Easter. Uh, and so if you can have the opportunity to come Saturday night, join us Saturday night at 5 or even Sunday night at 5, because Sunday morning there's going to be a lot of people here. Well, let's jump into the message right now. If you got your, your message notes, pull those out for me. And in everyone's message notes, you have the small group discussion guide. There's a reason why every person has a small group discussion guide. It's because as a church, we expect every person to be in a small group. Because we understand that's the best way to do Christianity. The, the way to get the most out of Christianity is to do life with others. And so this is what I like to say about small groups. Small groups is not a meeting that you go to once a week. Small groups have a meeting. What do I mean? The Jane family is not a dinner. The Jane family has dinner. Like how many of you know our family is not a dinner? Like we're, we're, we're more than a dinner. Now, we get together for dinner every week, but we're not a dinner. Small groups get together for a meeting every week, but small groups are not a meeting. Small groups are much bigger than a meeting. Small groups are simply a group of people that you're doing the Christian journey with. You know, according to the, to the book of Acts and the gospel, we do life with one another. We, we need a group of people that can encourage us, love us, be there for us. We can call at 3 o'clock in the morning if someone in the family is going to the hospital. That's what small groups really are. So small groups, yes, they have a meeting every week, but that's not what a small group is. A small group is just a group of people that you can count on, a group of people that are doing this Christian journey with you, that you're in a relationship with, people that will pray for you and support you, and that's the power of it. We'd love to help you find that. If you haven't found that, uh, th this is the foundation of our church, and we're driven by this, and so talk to anybody on our team, and we will help you find that group or start a group, whatever you need to be in a group of people doing this journey together with. We're in this series, The Gospel, and every week we're taking a look at this word gospel and trying to figure out what is the gospel. Because when I say the word gospel, many people today have this idea that the gospel is the story of Jesus. But here's the thing, when Jesus used the word gospel, it did not mean his story because his story was still being written. So the gospel must have meant something else when Jesus used the word. And in fact, when Jesus used the word, it's the Greek word. When you study the, the New Testament of our Bible, it was written in the original Greek language. The Greek word for gospel is euvangelizo. When Jesus used this Greek word, he sent shockwaves into the spiritual world because what he was saying is what I've come to start, what I've come to bring is not a religion. In fact, it's the exact opposite of religion. I didn't come to start a religion. I came to bring gospel. And these things are radically different. So every week we've been looking at different places in the Bible where this Greek word evangelizo gospel is being used. Today we're going to look at the Christmas story, Luke chapter 1. The angel said to him, talking about Zechariah, John the Baptist, his father. The angel is, is telling John, uh, Zechariah, John's father, that your wife's going to get pregnant in her old age. She's going to have a baby. This baby is going to be John the Baptist. He's going to be the, the prophesied Elijah that is declaring the way for the Lord. It says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this gospel, this evangelizo. Now, if you have an English Bible, it actually says good news. This is one of the only places in the English Bible the word evangelizo is translated as good news, but it actually is this word gospel. The angel saying, I've come to bring you a gospel. How many know this is very different than religion? The angel didn't say, I've come to bring you a list of rules to follow. I've come to bring you some commands that you have to obey. I've come to bring you a life that you have to live. No, he said, I came to bring you some good news. Your wife is going to get pregnant in her old age. That's good news for this guy. You see, the gospel is radically different than religion. The gospel is a news headline that you are excited about because it changes 
It changes your status. It changes your life, and that's what the gospel is. So today we're going to go a little bit deeper and understand the gospel. Because again, the goal of this series is not to get you to do anything. The goal of this series is to get you to believe something that's already been done. Because when you believe the gospel, when the gospel moves from your mind to your heart, it'll transform every area of your life. And the problem with Christianity today is we have a lot of people who understand the, the facts of the gospel. Like they, they understand it logically up into their mind, but the gospel has never transformed their heart because it hasn't moved from their head to their heart. And that's the goal of this series is to move it from your head to your heart. So today we're going to look at one of the most famous stories that Jesus tells in the Bible. And through this story, as famous as it is, many people miss the point. Jesus in this story redefines Christianity to the world. He redefines how to approach his father. He redefines everything people think about God. In fact, when you look at what he's communicating this, in this story, it's the reason why the Romans called Christians atheists for the first 200 years. It's the reason Christianity was known as an anti-religion because the claims that Christians make, no religion would ever say those things about God. No religion would ever think that way or go that way. What Jesus was saying was so radical in how you approach God that he redefined it all. So we're going to jump into Luke chapter 15. What I want to encourage you to do this week is read chapter 15 on your own. Study it. We're not going to go through all of it today, but it's all one story when you look at it. Because in verse 3, it says, Jesus told them this parable. Now, when you read Luke chapter 15, you think he's telling three stories. He's not telling three stories. He's telling one story. He's telling one parable illustrated three different ways. And the whole point of this story is he wants, to, he wants us to understand God's heart for lost people, that God is, God is motivated by lost people. God is looking for lost people. God is trying to find lost people. In fact, one of the stories, he says a good shepherd will actually leave the 99 sheep that are found to go look for the one sheep that is lost. I always say it like this, you can build a church for the 99 that are found, or you can build a church for the one that's lost. Here at Coastline, we've decided we're going to stay on mission. We're going to stay on point. We're going, to, we're going to keep our eyes where God's eyes are. Let me put it like this. God's happy you're here. Like, he really is. Like God's glad you chose to be here this morning, but he's distracted by the people out here that aren't here yet. Like He's moved and motivated by the people who are not here today because he's focused on lost people. And we're just going to be a church that's on mission. We, we realize that as Christians, we stay on point. We stay on mission. This is, this is who we are. So as we get into this story, we're going to look at the third illustration in this parable. Very, very famous. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, the prodigal son? The prodigal son. In most of your English Bibles, the headline for this section says, the prodigal son or the, the parable of the lost son. Now, for you to understand this story, you've got to understand that that's completely incorrect. That is not the title of this section. It's not even remotely close to the title of the section. This is not the story of the prodigal son. It is not the story of the lost son. It is the parable of two lost sons. And to understand this story, you've got to understand this is two lost sons, not one. The story is built in two acts. Act one is the story of the lost younger brother. Act two is the story of the lost older brother. If you don't understand that, this chapter is not going to make sense. The story won't make sense because Jesus is not telling a story about the younger brother. We highlight the younger brother. That's why we say the prodigal son. But the story is not about the younger brother. It's about both brothers. So let's jump into the story, and I'm going to show you three things today to help you understand the gospel more fully. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Again, I want you to understand it's about two sons, not about one son, it's about two sons. The younger son said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Now, I want you to remember Jesus is telling this story to an audience. The audience, upon hearing this, would have been outraged. The audience would have been in shock. The audience would have been upset. 
Because what this younger son does is the most disrespectful thing you can do to a father in this first century Middle Eastern society. In essence, what this son does is, I wish you were dead. I hate you. You you mean nothing to me. I just want your stuff. And this is a much different society than America today. I mean, the Old Testament, they would stone kids for disobedience. So can you imagine what the audience was thinking? Like, how dare this kid ever act so disrespectful to his father, to treat his father this way? But what was most shocking about the story was the father's response. This would have absolutely outraged the audience. Because he goes on to say, so the father divided his property between them. You see, the father would have been expected in this culture to physically beat his son and throw him out of the house. That's what any good father would have done. They would not have tolerated this rebellion and this disrespect. The kid would have been beaten and he would have been thrown out of the house to learn a lesson. And yet Jesus says the father does it. The father divides His property, the word property in the Greek is the Greek word bios, where we get biology, it's it's life. The father divides his life, his lifeblood, his life work, his life earnings. And this wasn't easy like it is in our time. Like we just go to the bank and withdraw or sell some stock. The father had to sell off his land. He had to sell off his livestock to be able to do this. I mean, a liquefy in this society was much, much more difficult. And this would have been a painful process for the father. This was the younger son. The older son in culture would have got a double portion, meaning two-thirds of the father's estate. The younger son would have got a third of the estate. And the father is enduring the most painful thing any of us ever go through in the human experience, and it's rejected love. See, what most of us do when we're rejected like this is we get angry, we retaliate, we we try to reject the other person to, to diminish our love for them so it doesn't hurt as bad. And the father responds to the son. So the son takes his portion of the estate and he moves to a foreign land and he blows it all. He wastes it all on prostitutes, on wild living until this kid hits rock bottom. And he has to take a job feeding pigs, which is the worst thing you could do if you were a Jewish kid because the Jews don't eat pigs. They have nothing to do with pigs. I mean, he he hit rock bottom to which everybody listening to the story, everybody in the audience would have been feeling, hearing this, yes, the kid got exactly what he deserved. That's karma. I mean, he got it for treating his father that way. Yes. I mean, they would have been so thrilled to hear that part of the story. Again, there's an audience, and the audience plays a big part to this story. So the kid comes up with a plan. He, he, he you know, doesn't like the situation he's in, so he comes up with a plan. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am serving, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I'll say to him. So, so he's got this speech that he rehearses. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, A hired servant wasn't a slave, wasn't a household servant. A hired servant would have been someone who had a trade. They came out every day to work on the father's estate, and they went back to the village where they lived with their family at night. So what the son is saying is, make me an apprentice. Let me learn a trade so that I can make restitution. You know, I I, I know you're not going to let me be a son. I know I can't live with you, but if you can at least make me an apprentice so that I can begin to, to work this off and make restitution. And everyone listening to the story, the audience that day is thinking to themselves, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. The kid is going to get what he deserves. And they all knew what he deserved. And so they couldn't wait for this kid to come crawling back to his dad and for his dad to let him have it. It says, so he got up. And he went to his father. And while he was a still long way off, his father saw him and was filled with. Now, if Jesus turned to the audience and says, now you fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. What do you think the audience would have said? Fill with what? Fill with rage. Fill with anger. Fill with disappointment. How dare this kid ever take advantage and do what he did to his father? What was the father filled with? 
Jesus is compassion. You see, Jesus is painting a picture that the world had never even seen of God. The world could never imagine. It goes on to say he ran to his son. You need to understand, Middle Eastern men didn't run. The patriarch of a household, children ran. It would have been humiliating for him to have to run. He'd have to pull up his robe, expose his ankles, legs, which that was a big deal in this society. I mean, he's embarrassing himself. He's shaming himself by running. But he throws all emotional abandonment out the window, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. Is this the picture you had of God growing up? Unfortunately, I grew up in a church. That's, that's not the way I thought about God. I thought God was mad at me. I thought God was disappointed in me. I thought God was angry at me. I thought God was just, you know, waiting to let me have it. I didn't, I didn't, I, I never imagined God would treat me this way. I mean, you understand what Jesus is doing here? So the son says to him, he gets into his rehearsed speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And in the middle of the speech, the father interrupts him. He doesn't even have a chance to finish. He doesn't even get to the hired servant part. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. The best robe would have been the father's. The father was the patriarch of the family. The father is saying, take my robe and we're going to cover my son's filthiness. We're going to cover my son's shame. He is my son. Put my robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. The ring was the family seal. It's how you signed a a contract in that age. You You would take the family ring and you'd put it in the hot wax confirming an arrangement or a contract. Put shoe sandals on his feet. The father's not, you're not going to be a hired servant. I am restoring you to your position as my son. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. But I want you to remember there's two acts to this story. Remember, there's two brothers. It's the parable of two lost sons. So the older brother hears about it, and he's particularly upset about the cost when you look at this. Something to do with this fattened calf that that really enrages the brother. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Can I say the father's house should always be a celebration? The Father's house is the church. This is, this is telling us what the church should be like. Like, you should leave church feeling better about yourself before you came. I didn't have that experience growing up. Like, I, would, I left church feeling worse about myself. Like, I love what David said. I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord, Psalm 122. I was not glad when they said it was time to go to church. I was mad. I was sad. Like, it was anything but celebration. Church should be a celebration. The Father's house should be a celebration. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. How would you feel? Like everyone in the audience identifies with the older brother right now. Think about it. Everybody hearing the story can feel the emotion of the older brother. They would feel exactly... How dare my younger brother ever treat my father this way? How dare he take advantage of dad? And so Jesus just puts the word in their mouth. He says he became angry. He was angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Again, when you understand first century Middle Eastern culture, this was incredibly disrespectful. What the older son is doing is shaming his father. You don't make the father come to you. You go to the father. And yet he stands outside pouting, making the father come to him. It would have been publicly humiliating for the father to have to leave the celebration in front of everyone to go out to his son because his son refused to come in. It says, he answered his father, look, 
Now again, when you study this in the original language, this was incredibly disrespectful. He doesn't call his father by the appropriate title. He doesn't call him father. In the Greek, he basically says, look you. Like, who do you think you are? Look you. All these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I mean, he is just publicly humiliating. His, won't call him father. Treats him like a dog. Refuses to come into him. He says, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he won't even call him brother, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, why is he so upset about this fattened calf? You see, in this culture, meat was a delicacy. You didn't eat meat all the time. Meat was very rare. And he's saying, you wouldn't even give me a young goat, but you've taken the fattened calf. You see, the fattened calf would have been the calf the family had been fattening for a period of time for a major feast or celebration, possibly the older brother's wedding. We don't know what they were fattening the calf for, but this was their prized piece of meat for a very, very special occasion. And the younger, the older brother is saying, look, you never even gave me a goat. And yet this, this kid who took all your money, squandered it all on prostitutes, you're giving him the fattened calf. In other words, he's saying, how dare you use our wealth this way? How dare you spend our family money this way? And yet the father still demonstrates grace. Again, I mean, you can't imagine how humiliating this would have been for the father in this culture. But yet, look at the way the father responds to him, my son. Look how tenderly he responds to him. In, in, in the middle of this older brother spitting in his face, the father still shows him grace. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And it's found. And then Jesus ends the story with a cliffhanger. He, do, he doesn't give you the end of the story. He doesn't tell you. Does the older brother come in? Does he stay out? He leaves it unanswered. Three things Jesus is showing us in this story. The first thing that I want you to see to really help you understand the gospel is Jesus redefines God in this story. He redefines everything people thought about God. In essence, Jesus is saying, everything you think you know about my dad has been wrong. I'm going to show you a picture of my father that this world has never seen before, that they can't even imagine. You know, Jesus was the first one to call God Father. Do you realize Jewish people to this day do not call God Father? Muslims do not call God Father. You see, God is way too big and great and awesome and mighty for us to be close and personal with. And Jesus comes along and says, you, you've missed it. He's our father. Remember the disciples came to Jesus, teach us how to pray. What did Jesus say? When you pray, this is how you do it. Our father. Do you, do you realize these are two of the most sacrilegious words Jesus ever said in the first century? He's talking to Jewish people. He's saying, when you pray, you approach God as your father. And he's not giving you the beginning of the Lord's prayer. He's giving you the beginning of every prayer. God doesn't answer your prayer because you obey him. God doesn't answer your prayer because you deserve it. God doesn't answer your prayer because you're good enough. God answers your prayer because he's your father. See, Jesus is trying to teach us how to pray the gospel way as opposed to pray the religious way. But again, here's the problem. Because many of us struggle with the idea of God as Father. I struggled with it for years because of my real Father. Because of being hurt, because of being abandoned. Everybody said, God is your Father. I, I said, you know what? I'll pass. Because I don't want to put myself in that position again. I had a Father once. It didn't work out. I, I don't want to risk getting hurt again. And so I, I kept God away from me for years. And what Jesus does with this story is he says, let me define what a real father is. Let me show you what a real father is. No other father would do what this father does in the story. And Jesus is showing us a picture of God the world could never imagine. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm sorry that some of you had terrible fathers here on earth. 
but I want you to know that my dad is not like your dad. My father is not like your father. He redefines everything people thought. You see, everyone in the audience that day had an expectation of how this, this Middle Eastern father should have treated this son. And Jesus shows us the exact opposite. He redefines God. Second thing Jesus does in the story is not only that, he redefines sin. You see, they all had an idea of what sin was. Jesus turned the table on it. He redefined it. You see, in Act 1, we have a traditional view of sin that, that we all understand. Like the younger brother, we, we get his sin. We understand the prostitutes and the wild living, and he had this whole list of sin, and we understand that. But in Act 2, Jesus flips the table. You see, the story is two sons. One son is really, really bad. One son is really, really good. And both sons are separated from the father. Both sons are lost. See, neither one of them wanted the father. They just wanted the son. They wanted the father's stuff. Two lost sons. And when Jesus gets to the end of the story, the bad son is saved. He's in the house with the father, and Jesus doesn't tell us what happens to the good son. And this would have shocked the audience. The bad son saved and a good man lost, and it gets worse. It gets worse. Because the good son is lost, but not because of anything bad that he did. The good son is lost because of his goodness. You see, it was his goodness that kept him from the father. That's why one of the things you hear me say a lot, the biggest sin of North County is our goodness. We're so good, we don't need God. And that's what's happening with his older brother. And to help you understand, you've got to understand the audience. Let, 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 me, let me take you back to the audience. Let me show you who the audience is so that you understand why Jesus is telling this story. Go back to verse 1 of Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Just meditate on that for a moment. Like sinners gathering around you. What is it about this Jesus that sinners felt comfortable around him? Like, sinners wanted to be around him. Sinners wanted to hear what he was saying. Can I say something about sinners? Because I used to be one. Sinners don't like religious people. Because religious people make them feel dirty. What is it about Jesus that sinners responded to? And then what, what, what else is interesting about what Luke does here? I don't know if you've ever noticed this in your Bible, but notice how he separated the tax collectors from the sinners. Like, he gave them their own special category. <laughs> like, there's sinners, and then there's people that we really, really hate, like tax collectors. <laughs> like, why else would he separate them? You see, tax collectors, tax collectors were hated worse than sinners. Like, like they're the ones that we... And can, can I say, honestly, every generation of Christians have had tax collectors? Every generation of Christians, there's sinners, and then there's the people we hate even worse than sinners. They're the reason America's falling apart. And see, everyone in the audience that day, including the sinners, knew that God would never approve of them. They knew it because of their occupation, because of their lifestyle, because of the morality, because of their choices. They, they knew God would never approve of them. But there's another group in the audience that day, the Pharisees. And the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So you have two groups in the audience. You have sinners and you have Pharisees. You have one group who felt like they were so alienated from God that God would never approve of them. And then you have another group who felt like they were so good that God had already approved of them. And Jesus looks at both groups and he realizes they're both wrong. They're both lost. Now you realize who these two sons represent. Now you realize who the older brother and the younger brother is. You see, when I pastored in Los Angeles, I was an associate pastor at the Dream Center for years. And, you know, we're in the inner city working with drug addicts and gang members and homeless and prostitutes. When I pastored in Los Angeles, predominantly I pastored the younger brother. Like most of the people in our church were younger brothers. That's who they were. They, they knew they were sinners. They weren't confused. They knew who they were. 
Moving to North County, on the other hand, what I've realized is I predominantly pastor older brothers here in North County. You see, Jesus shows us there's two types of people. There's moral conformity people. I'm good, and and, and I'm going to do good, and I will be good. I'm a good person. And then there's self-discovery. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. I don't care if it affects other people. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. And each group says, this is the way to make the world better. And Jesus says, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. You see, each brother divides the world in two. And we're seeing those divisions in America like never before. America's more divided than it's ever been. You have older brothers in America who are saying the good and the moral people like us are in and the bad people like you are out. And then we have a group of younger brothers in America who say the open-minded and progressive people like us are in and the bigot, judgmental, closed-minded people like you are out. And Jesus says, you're both wrong. Neither of you are in. The humble are in and the proud are out. Jesus says, you've missed it. There's two ways to live. We see in the brothers, one son tries to control the father by being very, very good and by doing a bunch of good things so that he can get stuff from the father, and the other son just does whatever he wants to do and lives however he wants to live. Both sons are lost. But here's the point. It's harder to see it when you're the older brother. It's harder to recognize when you're the older brother. Flannery O'Connor, in her book, Wise Blood, which was just a dark satire on religion, she made this statement about one of the characters. There was a black wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. That's what the older brother tries to do. I don't want to be close to God, so I'm going to be really, really good so he's not on my back. But I'm not doing it for him. I'm just doing it for the stuff. And there's a lot of Christians who operate this way. They, who, they honestly think if I read my Bible enough and if I pray enough and if I help enough people and do enough good, then God has to bless me. God is obligated to bless me. And all you're doing is simply trying to control God. You see, religious people obey God to get stuff and to avoid consequences. Gospel people obey God to get God. They just want God. Let me give you some symptoms of the older brother or symptoms of religion. Religion focuses on the weakness of man instead of the goodness of God. Religion wants people to earn their acceptance with God. My younger brother has to work his way back into his family. We can't just receive him. He has to earn it. He's got to show us that he's repented and he deserves it. Religion confuses holiness with harshness. Religion criticizes from afar. Religious people tend to be angry. God owes me. You see, Jesus redefines sin, redefines what we think of sin, redefines what we think of God. And then finally, Jesus redefines salvation. Salvation, what does it mean to be accepted by God? What does it mean to be saved? And every religion has an answer to salvation. Every religion has an answer to salvation. And they all basically say the same thing. You know, salvation basically meaning whatever the goal of the religion is, whether it's reincarnation, enlightenment, heaven, God's approval or acceptance. Every religion has an answer, and they all basically say the same thing. Do this, do that, try really hard, follow these commands, obey these rules, and if you live a good enough life and you, and you don't do enough bad things and you do more good things than you do bad things, then at the end of the life, you can achieve salvation and Jesus redefines it. Jesus says you've missed it. It, it. You totally misunderstand what my father is after. Jesus is saying you can't divide the world between good people and bad people. You see, that's what religion does. Religion wants to divide it between good people and bad. If you obey enough, you're on the good side. And if you disobey, you're on the bad side. So it's all about how much good you do versus how much bad you do. And Jesus says, you've missed it. Nobody's good. Everybody falls short. No one will ever be good enough. Look what he says in Matthew 11. Jesus says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is saying John the Baptist was the greatest human being to ever live. Better than Mother Teresa. Better than anyone else you can think about. Like nobody was better than John. And then look what he says in the next statement. Yet whoever is least 
least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the worst, filthy, horrible sinner that you can imagine who if at the end of their life gives their heart and life to Jesus and receives his forgiveness and God by his grace brings them to heaven, that filthy, horrible sinner who lived a terrible life for years and years and years is actually better than John the Baptist and all of his goodness. You understanding that? You can't separate the world between the good and the bad. Moral conformity and self-discovery both try to control people. So what's the answer? How does salvation work according to Jesus? Well, Jesus shows us three things in this story. First is we need the initiating love of the Father. We need the initiating love of the Father. It's not about how much you love God. It's about how much God loves you. Look at the story. The father runs out to the younger son and he kisses him. And what I want you to understand, it was not, the the repentance of the son does not trigger the kiss of the father. The kiss of the father triggered true repentance of the son. The father ran to him before the son ever opened his mouth. It was the father's initiating love that melted the son's heart. And what's incredible about the story is the father doesn't just go out to the younger son. The father also goes out to the older son. Remember? Remember the audience? Jesus is telling this story to Pharisees. Jesus is telling this story to people who are going to crucify him. He knows it. He knows that people in this audience are going to crucify me. And yet he shares this story. You see, the gospel is offensive to the younger brother. We see that in the news all the time in America. But can I also say the gospel is also offensive to the older brother? Like I know because I've already gotten the emails over the last couple weeks because of this series. I mean, there's some religious people that are having a very hard time swallowing this. Like, it is offensive to them. Like, no, it can't be that way. Like, they need to earn it. It's about being good. It's offensive to the younger and the older. And But what I love about Jesus is Jesus is not self-righteous about the self-righteous. Jesus loves the Pharisees. See, Jesus is telling this story out of love to the Pharisees. The father goes out to the older son. You see that? The father is pleading with the older son to come into the house. It's the initiating love of the father. We also need to learn how to repent from something besides our sins. Now, let let, let me me help you understand that because that's a tough concept for some at first. The younger brother in the story, he has a whole list of sins that he needs to repent of, right? Right? Like, there's a list, prostitution, on down. Like, he's got a list of things that he has to repent of. But the older brother in the story is also lost, but he's got nothing on his list. Right? The older brother's lost, but there's nothing on his list. It says, I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Like, Father, I've never disobeyed you. There's nothing on his list to repent of. You see, it's not that he's perfect, but when a Pharisee sins, they repent of the action. Because that's what you do when you're religious. Here's the difference. A Christian, a real Christian, does not just repent of the bad things that they do. A real Christian repents for the reasons why they did the good things. Now, don't act like you understand that right now, Um, because that one you got to think about for a moment. Let let me help you with it. A real Christian doesn't just repent of the bad. It's easy to repent of the bad things because they're so obvious. They're so glaring. A real Christian learns how to repent for the reason, the motivation for why we did the good things, because the truth is many times our motivation for doing good things is to control and manipulate. How many times have you tried to do good to control God? How many times have you, have you prayed and fasted because you need God to do a healing? Like, why are you praying? 
What is the motivation? Is it trying to get God to do something for you or trying to get God? You see, there's a big difference. When you understand this, everything changes. And here's the last thing before we close. We need to be melted and moved by what it costs to bring us home. Your heart needs to melt when you think about the price that was paid to bring us home. I want you to remember, the Pharisees obey to get stuff, right? But a Christian obeys God to get God. Why? Why am I after God and not after his stuff? Because my heart's been melted. My heart's been moved. When I see the cost, the price for God to bring me home... And we look at the story and you think, well, wasn't it free? The father didn't make him become a hired servant. The father just brought him back. That, that looks like it was free. No, the last verse. The father says to the older brother, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. What does that mean? Well, the father had already divided his property and already given the younger son his inheritance, which meant Everything the father had left was the older son's. The, the father wasn't going to redistribute. The younger son wasn't getting another penny. A hundred percent of what the father had at this time was all of the older brothers. So you need to understand, it cost the older brother to bring the younger brother home. All of the food the younger brother would eat, all of the clothes the younger brother would wear, all of that cost the older brother. Somebody had to pay, and it was coming out of the older brother's inheritance. So somebody did pay. The older brother paid. And what Jesus does in this story is Jesus puts in an ugly older brother. He does what great rabbis do. Great rabbis, they, they love to contrast. They show you an ugly version and a beautiful version. Jesus puts in an ugly older brother to let the Pharisees see what they look like. To see how they were acting. See, a true older brother would have gone to his father and said, Dad, I'll go get my brother. I'll travel as far as I need to go to find him. I'll pay whatever I need to pay. I'll do that for you, Dad. I'll bring him home whatever it costs me, I will find my brother that you love and I will bring him home. That's what a true older brother would have done. And this poor kid in the story didn't have a good older brother. But you and I do. Do you realize we had an older brother who went to his dad and said, Dad, I'll go. And I'll do whatever it takes. I'll pay any price, whatever it costs me, whatever I have to go through, I'll go and I'll bring them home. You see, Jesus put in an ugly older brother so that our hearts would long for a good older brother. Somebody that wouldn't just come find us in some crack house somewhere, but somebody who would literally leave heaven for earth. Do you understand what Jesus gave up? What he left, the way he lived, the luxury, the extravagance, the comfort that he walked away from to say, Dad, I'll go and I'll pay the price to bring them home. That's the gospel. Because we have an older brother who did it on our behalf. Would you close your eyes for a moment? Father, in the name of Jesus, I am just so grateful that Jesus opened our eyes to who you are today. Because so many of us, we've had the wrong idea We've had a distorted perception. We've had religion put a filter on us for how we saw you. And I'm just so grateful today that Jesus came and said, no, everything you think about my dad is wrong. Let me show you who my dad really is. Let me show you how my dad really feels about you. 
And Jesus, I want to thank you that you said to your father one day, I'll go. I'll go and I'll do whatever it takes to bring them home. And you did. You came. And you paid the price to be able to bring us home. And Holy Spirit, I ask this morning that you do the supernatural. Because understanding this message in our head is not enough. We need it in our heart. We need this to melt and move our heart. And only you can do that. So I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would take the gospel and move it from our mind into our heart. Let this message of who the Father really is and who our older brother really is, let this message melt and move us to the point of total surrender and total abandonment, living for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me for a moment? Before we leave this morning, if you're here today and you need to respond to Jesus, you need to make a decision for Jesus, you need to give your life to him, I want you to know that God's not mad at you. God's not disappointed with you. He's not frustrated with you. He's not sitting in heaven tapping his foot thinking, can't you get your act together? The father you see in the story, Jesus is saying, that's my dad. And that's exactly how he'll treat you. Whether you're an older brother or whether you're a younger brother, it doesn't matter. He wants to welcome you home. That's why we say God doesn't want to be your religion. He wants to be your father. If you've never given your life to God, if you've never become a Christian, I want to invite you to do that today. At the end of this service, during, during this final song, we're going to have a prayer team available. And you can either come up during the song or you can come up at the end of the song. And just come to anybody on our prayer team and say, I, 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 want, I want to know God. I, I want to be part of his family. I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. They'll help you understand it. They'll pray with you. It'll be the greatest decision you'll ever make. But you've got to take that step. Again, the younger brother had to take the step home. Now, when the father saw him take the step, he ran to him. But he still had to take the step. And so I'm asking you to take that step today. If you need Jesus today, just take the step. Just take the step. Come and pray with somebody on our team. And if you're here and you need prayer for anything else going on in your life, that's what they're there for. So, so just utilize them today. They're, they want to pray with you. They'd be honored to. We're going to do one song of worship, and then we'll close.